You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. past few weeks, we've been looking at a series that I've been calling the implications of the incarnation. Now, if you're not familiar with the term incarnation, that's the term that we use to describe the fact that Jesus came to this earth and took on flesh. He was born a man. And we've been talking about some of the implications of what he chose to do, the way that affects us, what he accomplished on our behalf through this activity. And this morning, We're going to be spending some time talking about the fact that Jesus was made the perfect sacrifice for sins. As Jesus came to this earth and took on flesh, he was made the perfect sacrifice for sins. And we're going to be looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. So take your Bibles and turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 1. And this is what it says in that passage of Scripture. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins." But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the gift and the pleasure that it is to be able to look at your word together today. We're so grateful that we have the privilege to look at it and to think about the things that you reveal to us in it. And Father, we pray that as this portion of Scripture speaks about the fact that your Son, Jesus Christ, was the perfect sacrifice for sins, we pray that we would understand this in its in its totality, that we would understand the implications of what your son came to this earth to accomplish on our behalf, and that we, would, that we would look at this portion of Scripture and just find ourselves 
immensely grateful because we acknowledge the fact that something was done for us that we couldn't, done, we couldn't have done on our, our, our own behalf. This isn't something we could have done for ourselves. This is something that ultimately only could have been accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for this reminder today. We pray that by your grace that you would speak to our minds and our hearts and help us to understand it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to answer this question out loud, but I'll just throw it out there because I want us to wrestle with it a little bit. But the question is this, are you a perfectionist? Are you a perfectionist? Just think about that for just a second. Do you ever struggle with that perspective? Are you trying to get everything right and perform always at the highest level and basically make it through life mistake-free? Is that how you would describe your life and your personality and your temperament? A few years ago, I had a really deep conversation with a member of our family who admitted to me that she really struggles with perfectionism. And I have to admit, I felt compassion for her immediately because this is something that I've often struggled with as well. It's very unhealthy. And as she shared her struggles with me, she also revealed one of the biggest downsides to perfectionism. And I'll explain it to you right now because it's something I think we should be well aware of. If you're trying to be perfect in your own strength and think that somehow perfectionism can be obtained prior to your glorification in Christ's presence, you're not going to know what to do when you make a mistake or when you mess something up. You're not going to have a way to compute that in your mind. You're either going to attempt to deny to yourself that it happened at all, or you're going to struggle with such a heavy load of shame that you'll end up running away, and you'll end up trying to hide from those who love you most, including the Lord. It's typically the pattern of those who deal with perfectionism. And if your sense of shame is allowed to persist for an abnormally amount, an abnormally long period of time, it runs the risk of driving you crazy. Your personality will change. Your relationships will be damaged. You may even start to hate yourself, and you may gravitate toward unhealthy solutions to try and medicate your pain or try and dull your memory. This is a pattern that that goes right along with perfectionism. But that doesn't need to be the approach that any one of us takes to feelings of shame or an experience of shame. You don't need to continue to preach an unbiblical message of perfectionism to your heart. In fact, there's a completely different approach that you could take toward every struggle or bad decision you've ever made over the course of your life, whether it be something recent, whether it be something in the distant past, whether it be something in between. Every single struggle or bad decision you've ever made, there's a different way to handle it. Instead of living with a perpetual sense of shame over your poor choices, Scripture reveals to us that we can confess these things to the Lord. And we can accept the fact that the payment that Jesus made for our sin truly was sufficient to cover it. If you're struggling with perfectionism, and if you're struggling with the shame that goes with it, that tells me something theological that's going on in your mind as well that needs to be corrected. This is a a weird thing to admit to ourselves, but I think it's actually healthy that we do admit this to ourselves. One of the things that we struggle, even as Christians sometimes, is, is... Sometimes we adopt elements of false gospels 
and we adopt them into our mind, into our thinking, into our theological understanding like these things are the true gospel. And what ends up happening is if we're, if we're going through life wrestling with shame, dealing with perfectionism, thinking that in some way that there's no solution to this, we'll end up preaching a false gospel to our heart, and we'll mistakenly allow ourselves to believe that, that we need to somehow become the perfect sacrifice to atone for our own sin, and we'll keep beating ourselves up, hoping to eventually accomplish that. Now, you don't have to admit out loud if this is something that you wrestled with, but I would, I would guarantee that a large portion of us gathered together today have wrestled with this. I don't, I don't even think it's a small segment of us. I think it's a lot of people. And here's the thing. If you go through life beating yourself up, thinking that somehow that's going to atone for the sin that you feel shame related to, you're going to eventually discover, hopefully sooner than later, that it won't work. That's not going to work. That's not going to atone for the sin. If that could possibly work, there would have been no need for Jesus to come to this earth to be the perfect sacrifice for sin, because if there was a way for us to permanently take care of the problem of our, of our sinfulness, Jesus wouldn't have had to, to do what he did, because his sacrifice would have been redundant and unnecessary. If there was any other way to take care of it, Christ would not have needed to come to this earth and take on flesh and suffer for our sin, because there would have been some sort of a plan B. But there is no plan B. And since we couldn't permanently atone for our sin, what Scripture reveals to us is that Jesus did it for us. He's the once-for-all sacrifice for mankind. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here in Hebrews chapter 10, in the first 14 verses that we just looked at. And if you've ever taken the time to read through the, uh, the Old Testament, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, I'd actually throw out a challenge that during the course of this coming year, we're going to be spending our, t- our time looking at a variety of Old Testament scriptures in this coming year. And I would encourage you to take time to read through the Old Testament, but one of the things that you would notice if you read through it, and especially if, you, if it's the first time you're reading through it, it'll probably occur to you right away that many of the religious practices of that era were quite different from what we presently practice. You'll come across different regulations, different requirements, different things that the Lord told Old Testament Israel to practice, different things that the people during that era were carrying out and, uh, and living with. And one of the things that you'll notice when you read through the Old Testament is that during that era of history, it was very common to make various sacrifices in response to human sinfulness. In fact, when you look at the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us this. Let me reread these for us. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you look at that and you think, that's interesting. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought this. I've often thought this, that I'm really glad to live during this New Testament era as opposed to the Old Testament era, even though I'm fascinated with what life was like during that time. I'm, I'm, uh, 
I'm grateful to live during this era of history for many reasons. I like indoor plumbing. I like the ease of transportation. You know, last week I was, I don't know if you knew this, I I shared this online, but last week I, um, you know, really like just not too many hours before I had to stand in this pulpit. I was in an airport in Chicago. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, in just a few hours, I need to be standing in that pulpit. I am nowhere near that pulpit. I was in an airport in Chicago, and my plane kept getting delayed over and over and over again. Seven delays. Seven delays. They couldn't find a pilot. But then they found a pilot, but then they needed to find a co-pilot. So then it was another half hour on top of that, but then they found the co-pilot. And then I ended up home, and I think, all right, well, I like living in this era of history because I just flew from Chicago to Philadelphia in a very short period of time. So I do like that, but when I look through the Old Testament... I think, I wonder what it would have been like to live during that era of time. Now, that's a long era of time I'm referencing, and I say the Old Testament era, talking thousands of years, but one of the things that you'd notice if you're reading through the Old Testament is that during that era, repeated animal sacrifices were made. And the scripture here talks about sacrifices that were made year after year. But here's the thing, those sacrifices, even though, they were, even though the Lord encouraged the people and told them to, to follow this and, and to make this a, a pattern and a practice during that period of time, these sacrifices that were being made for the sin of the people, it couldn't perfect the people. And it also couldn't perfect the priests who were offering these sacrifices. At best, these things were a temporary appeasement of God's righteous wrath against sin because they didn't have, as the Scripture tells us, a permanent effect on the worshiper. The way Hebrew says it here, it says, you know, um, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So that's what the writer of Hebrews reminds us of here. The fact that, that ultimately these, these sacrifices did not have a permanent effect on the worshiper. The person would still struggle with sin and the guilt and the shame that accompanies it. And then they'd repeat the animal sacrifices that they made previously. But as the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 4 of chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So since the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away the culpability and the shame and the separation that comes as a result of sin, another solution would ultimately need to be offered. That's what the writer here is trying to get at. And by the way, we've been studying the book of Hebrews together on Wednesday nights, and one of the things I say every week is that if you want to understand the book of Hebrews, and ultimately if you want to understand the message of Scripture, you need to be asking yourself the entire time, how is this trying to point me to Jesus? So these animal sacrifices that were taking place during the Old Testament era, how are those things trying to point me to Jesus? And even here, the writer of Hebrews, what is he trying to help us understand? What he's trying to point your heart and my heart toward is the fact that Christ is the ultimate solution. Jesus is the solution for this. The sacrificial blood that was shed during the Old Testament era, it foreshadowed the blood that Jesus would shed when he came to this earth and he took on flesh. And it's in the shedding of his blood that our sin is actually atoned for. It's through him alone that our sin is taken away. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to elaborate on this a little bit more. And he quotes from Psalm 40 when he says this. But when you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, 
He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, during the Christmas season, which right now we're right in the midst of, just a week away from Christmas, we regularly acknowledge the fact that the Son of God came to this earth and took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's something that Christians through all the centuries have acknowledged, and and, uh, we certainly think about that fact. But one thing we don't give as much thought to is why Jesus did that. We think about the fact that he did it, but we don't always think about all the reasons why he chose to do that. And so the, the writer of Hebrews wanted to make that clear for us as the Holy Spirit was giving him the words to say here. And he did that by quoting a portion of Psalm 40 and even adding some interpretation to the quote. And the psalm speaks of the Messiah as coming to this earth with a body that the Father had prepared for him. And it also states that the Messiah came to use that body to do the will of God the Father. And Jesus, the fulfillment of this prophetic psalm, what he did was he became an offering, and he became a sacrifice that would be different from the sacrifices of the past. His sacrificial death would satisfy the wrath of the Father against sin and would be the means by which the problem of human sinfulness would be permanently dealt with. Sin is a tempting reality of our lives at present. And I think while sin has its consequences, and in many respects, I think we're well aware of those consequences, I think we still find sin tempting. Even though we're aware of the consequences, it still tempts us. Isn't that a weird thing about sin? That you know it can wreck your life, you know it can wreck your reputation, your family, your career, all of those things. You know that it can do that. You know that sin has dire consequences, and yet each and every one of us, we're still tempted in all respects by the very same thing that that seeks to destroy us. And Scripture is very interesting when it tells us the fact that the sins that tempt us are common. I don't know... Uh, and by the way, we're not going to go around in a circle and, and like uh, confess to each other right now all our major temptations, because here's the thing. I'll just save everybody the trouble. It's all the categories. There you go. Right? The Scripture tells us that the sin that is tempting to you is tempting to me, that our struggles are common. It's common. We, we all deal with the same stuff. The stuff that you think you're dealing with, and you think, oh, you know what? I, I'm probably the only one. Bet you I'm the only one in church dealing with that. Betcha. And then if you could read everybody's minds right now, you'd be like, oh, no, no, there's like a whole bunch of other people that are dealing with that too. Oh, okay. That doesn't make it necessarily any better. It's like, oh, great, we're all in a mess. That's really what that means. And, uh, and when you look at that and, and you just think about the fact that our sins are quite common and yet we think that they're so unique, But what Scripture is really telling us, when you look at it in its totality, it's basically telling us we're struggling with different versions of the same thing. All of us are. And I think that there's a part of us, and this is is where sin gets really, really dangerous for us. I think there's a part of us that might still think that we could find some level of relief from our pain or our grief if we give in to the temptations of this world. Do you ever hear the acronym HALTS, H-A-L-T-S? It's something something useful to keep in in mind. 
So H stands for hungry, A stands for angry, L stands for lonely, uh, T stands for tired, and S stands for sad. H-A-L-T-S, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, sad. Do you ever realize how likely you are to medicate any one of those things with something? If you're hungry, there's good medication. Last night I had chicken strips. It's good medicine. I'm on a straight chicken strip, you know, holistic diet. Um, angry, you know, what do we medicate our anger with? Well, maybe comedy, maybe something else. Loneliness, what do you medicate your loneliness with? Fatigue, tiredness, what do you medicate your tiredness with? Your sadness, what do you medicate your sadness with? One of the things that is one of the biggest dangers for us, even as believers, is how you choose to handle each one of those emotions. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, sad. Because you might end up medicating it with an area of temptation that becomes an addiction. You might end up medicating it. You might feel sad. And you think, you know what the solution to the sadness is going to be? And instead of looking to Christ to be the solution, you know what we're oftentimes tempted to do? Looking at something that this world offers and thinking, you know what, that'll fix my sad. Or if you're feeling lonely, medicating with something of this world. Or if you're feeling tired, or if you're feeling angry. Sometimes we think we could find like ultimate relief from our pain or our grief if we give in to the temptations of this world. And oftentimes that's when our resistance is the lowest. But if you want to get really serious about your faith, and I'm going to make the assumption that each of us gathered here today that that is something that we want. If you want to get really serious about your faith, I want you to do something. This will actually help you, I believe. Force yourself to remember what Jesus has done on your behalf for your sin. He was born to do this very thing. His incarnation was carried out with a full understanding of the kind of death that he would endure in the body. So when I think about the price that Jesus paid to pay for my sin, both physically and spiritually, what I have found is that my areas of temptation don't seem quite as tempting to me any longer. It's not that they're not tempting at all. It's just that forcing myself to think about what Christ did to atone for the sin that there's a part of me that still wants to commit, what it does is it robs that temptation of a level of its power over me. And I find that very helpful. In fact, I really appreciate the perspective that John Piper once shared regarding the incarnation of Jesus. And I want us to think about this. I'm going to bring this up for us to see this here. Hopefully you could read that. But Piper said it this way. Think about this in regard to Christ coming to this earth and taking on flesh. He said, the incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. That's what the incarnation is. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks so that Judas would have a place to kiss, and there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall, so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. 
Now, I know when we think about the incarnation that that may not be what immediately comes to our mind, but I do think in regard to it, it, it's useful to think that this is what Jesus was willing to do for you and for me when he took on flesh. And he endured it all, Scripture tells us, because of the joy that was set before him. He enjoyed momentary torture so that you and I can enjoy eternal peace. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? Scripture tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured this all. A big part of that joy was the fact that he knew he was offering us the means by which we would experience eternal peace. His temporary torture results in us being offered eternal peace. He endured pain so that we could find the solution to our pain in him. During the days before Christ's incarnation, Scripture reveals to us that that priests would repeatedly offer animal sacrifices over and over and over. But then the Scripture here tells us that Jesus came to be the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and the work He accomplished on the cross never needs to be repeated. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. When you look at verses 11 to 14 of Hebrews 10, it says this, "...and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices..." which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Isn't that a beautiful thing to contemplate? I think what a blessing it is to know that Jesus accomplished this for us. That Christ was willing to do this for you and for me. What a blessing to know that his single sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our mistakes, was sufficient to pay for our rebellion. What a blessing to know that, just as the Scripture says, that the day is coming when we will be perfected in his presence, and sin will never be something we struggle with ever again. Again, if you're someone who really wrestles with perfectionism and thinking that somehow you can make yourself perfect in your own efforts, isn't it nice to see how perfectionism really does happen? The good news is you will be perfect. You will be. Not before you're glorified, after you're glorified. And in the meantime, while we look forward to the, to the miraculous and ultimate effects of the work that Christ accomplished on our behalf, I want us to to finish up this morning by just thinking about some present-day blessings that we're invited to enjoy through our relationship with Jesus. Think about these things in a very personal way. One of the blessings that you and I have the opportunity to experience because of what Christ endured for us, the fact that He was willing to take on flesh and be that ultimate once-and-for-all sacrifice for for our sins, to atone for our sins once and for all, through Jesus... Your conscience is cleansed. Through Jesus, your conscience is cleansed. I, I don't know if you're, if you're presently wrestling with shame or regret over past mistakes or past decisions that you made maybe at a less mature season of your life. But if you're still wrestling with shame, I hope that you'd be willing to give that over to Jesus today and stop returning to it and stop recycling it in your mind. Because through Jesus, your conscience is cleansed. Your sin has already been paid for. It's already been dealt with. Jesus took care of it for you. And if you believe the sacrifice that he made in the flesh on your behalf was sufficient, 
then allow yourself to also believe that what he's done for you is likewise sufficient to cleanse your conscience. If you believe the work he did on the cross was sufficient to pay for your sin, that same work is sufficient to cleanse your conscience. But it's a matter of whether or not we live like men and women with cleansed consciences, or if we keep recycling and repeating the things of the past that Jesus has already dealt with, things we've long ago repented of, things we've turned over to Christ. Welcome the cleansing of your conscience that he offers, because it's a beautiful thing. It's another thing that I hope will encourage you. Through Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm going to give you a test in just a second, but I want to ask this before I give you the test. Sorry if you're new here and didn't realize there was a test. Every week, every week there's a test, and you can't go home until you pass it. But this is a quick test that I want to give you that will test, I think, pretty effectively whether or not you believe the statement that through Jesus, your sins are forgiven. So this is an internal test. You don't even have to turn the paper into me. It's an internal test. Do you actually believe the statement, through Jesus, your sins are forgiven? This is the test. When you think about standing before God someday and looking at him face to face, Does thinking about that experience fill you with dread and fear, or does it fill you with a sense of relief? When you think about the day, you're going to stand before God, see him face to face. Is that a dreadful thought in your mind? Or something that comes with a sense of relief? If you don't actually believe your sins are forgiven then the idea of being face-to-face with God will no doubt terrify you. But if you actually believe your sins are forgiven, and that the sacrifice Christ made in his body fully satisfied the wrath of the Father against your sin, that day will be a day to look forward to. As God the Father sees the Son as holy and blameless, so too does he see everyone who is united to the Son by faith. I think sometimes we struggle to see ourselves from God's perspective, and it's hard for us to accept that personally. I think it's easier to accept that theologically and to say, yeah, theologically, I understand that this is what God accomplishes. But then when you think about it regarding yourself, you're like, yeah, but it's really hard to connect that to my heart. Do I really believe that through Jesus, my sins are forgiven? I think that's a good test that can help you figure that out. How about this? Something else to look forward to. Through Jesus, you will be made perfect. You, specifically, will be made perfect through Jesus. You may have plenty of struggles right now, but here's the thing. You won't always struggle like you presently do. The day is coming when, in the presence of Jesus, you'll be blessed with a glorified, sinless body. That's what Scripture describes it as. For those who are united to Christ will be blessed with a glorified, sinless body, Scripture also reveals we won't make any more mistakes in that glorified body. We won't rebel against God. The day is coming, and and since it's coming, I actually think it's something that the Lord wants us to be able to look forward to. I've often talked about the fact that I purposely put things on my monthly and weekly and yearly calendar that are things that I know that I'm I'm not going to forget. They don't need to be in the calendar. I just put them in the calendar because they're things that I'm looking forward to. Because I like when I'm going through my calendar, which mostly has tasks and things that are to do, 
I like putting things in there that I'm strictly putting it in there because it's something that I'm going to enjoy that I'm looking forward to. And I love the fact that, that Scripture makes it very clear that the day is coming when the Lord is going to perfect us. The things that I struggle with right now, the things you struggle with right now, are things that we will not struggle with for all eternity if we know Jesus Christ is our Lord. We'll be made perfect, but we won't be made perfect through our own efforts. It's not going to be through your efforts or my efforts that we're made perfect. It's going to be accomplished for you by God based on the work Jesus has already accomplished on your behalf. So let me say this as we end. When Jesus came to this earth, you have the writer of Hebrews trying to make this clear for us. When Jesus came to this earth, he was made the perfect sacrifice for sins. And I think we have the opportunity to rejoice in this truth together. I think we have the opportunity to give ourselves the permission that we need to believe this and all the implications that come with it completely. Because the Lord wants us to understand and experience a life where we go through life with a conscience that isn't seared, a conscience that isn't in rebellion, a conscience that's cleansed, a conscience that aligns with the will of God and the heart of God, a mind that understands that that our sins have been forgiven through Christ, a life that when we look at it, we say, you know what, I goofed that up and I goofed that up. We can go before the Lord, we can confess it, we could repent of it. And we could know that we're still accepted into his presence. Because our perfection isn't based on what we do, it's based on what Christ has done for us. And we're not going to be perfected prior to being glorified. So right now we struggle, but we lean heavily on Christ. And here's the thing, we'll lean on him heavily for all eternity. He is the one who created us. He's the one who sustains us. And he's the one who looks at you and me. And he offers us a much better life than this world could ever offer. This world tells me that I will find satisfaction for my soul through the very things that seek to destroy me. This world tells you the same thing, that we could satisfy our hunger, our anger, and our loneliness, and our our tiredness, and our sadness through things that really want to just rip us apart. And then Christ looks at you and me and he says, you know, I'm the perfect sacrifice for your sin came to this earth and took on flesh to atone for your sin. And Christ looks at us and he offers himself to us. And he invites us to trust in him and be united with him and then be made like him. And so the writer of Hebrews was trying to encourage us to understand these things because I suspect that that writer knew the very things that we struggle with because they were common to him as well. We struggle with all the same things, but again, as this writer here makes it very clear in this portion of Scripture... Jesus Christ absolutely is the solution. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for the fact that even though it's very easy for us to go through life at times over-relying on ourselves and our own efforts, our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own attempts to atone for our sin, Lord, you bring us back to the truth when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, and you remind us of the fact that we don't have the capacity to atone for our sin. It's just like the blood of bulls and goats. We can beat ourselves up continually, but that's not going to solve the problem. Our conscience is ultimately going to find cleansing through your Son. Our sin is ultimately only going to find 
permanent atonement through the blood that your son Jesus Christ shed on our behalf. Lord, we realize that one of the big struggles that we as as human beings make during the course of our earthly journey is that we elevate ourselves so high and we think highly of ourselves and so little of you. And even in our attempts to think that maybe through punishing ourselves in some way or, or whatever it may be that we could atone for the mistakes of our past or whatever it may be, Lord, in a way, we're, we're basically saying, I'm going to go through life attempting to be my own savior. It seems like just another form of humanism to me. And so, Lord, I pray that we would recognize that your son is the solution for all this. Your son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and took on flesh and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and then who died in our place as the perfect sacrifice for sin, but didn't remain dead, rose on the third day and offers us new life through faith in him. Father, I recognize that there are many people throughout the course of this world who during this time of year will think about the fact that your son really did come to this earth and take on flesh. But Lord, so often we don't really think about what that means or why that was done. So thank you, Lord, for a portion of Scripture like this that reminds us that the purpose of that was, or that one of the major purposes of that was the fact that he would become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So, Father, we're grateful that through your Son, our conscience is cleansed, our sin is forgiven, and we'll be made perfect. Lord, as we approach today, as we approach this week, we pray that we wouldn't preach a false gospel to our hearts, one that is self-reliant and one that is overly focused on the things we do. We pray, Lord, that the message that we preach would be one where we are reminded over and over and over again that our sufficiency is found in your Son, Jesus Christ, who did for us what we could never do. So thank you, Lord, for these reminders, and thank you for the encouragement that we receive from it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. This is Perseus Poku, host of the Sound Reasoning Ministry podcast. Learn how to share and defend your faith by listening to us weekly. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.